Well, morning, everyone. Once again, thanks for joining us as we continue to be fed the richness, the power, the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding of God's Word by His Spirit. And our prayer always is, not only in this class, but in any class that we teach or in a covenant group or Sunday morning worship, any time believers gather together, not that the Holy Spirit is not with us, He is with us, but that we are listening to Him, hearing Him, receiving what He says, submitting and walking to the will of God through the revelation of His Word. So let's join our hearts in prayer as we begin. Father, thank You so much. Father, we always say this, where would we be apart from the revelation of who You are? and what you have done as it is given to us by the Spirit through your Word. Father, we thank you that your Word stands as a declaration of your awesome grace. But Father, we also know that as it stands as a great proclaimer of your grace, it means nothing to man until the Holy Spirit enlivens it to hearts and minds. Father, it means nothing to us as believers until you cause it to become alive in us and energized in us, moving and molding and working in us, transforming our minds, conforming us to the image of your Son. So, Father, thank you for your word. Father, may we be people of your word, completely immersed in your word by the Spirit, being controlled by your word, by the Spirit, being led, protected, encouraged, instructed, adjusted by your word through the Spirit. Father, so that we may be upon the earth those image bearers which accurately and compellingly and truthfully and continually say to the world, this is what God is, who God is, and this is what he looks like. Father, that they may know by seeing us, listening to us, watching us, Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, and so doing, we know that you will use this testimony to save many, to save all of your people. So, Father, instruct us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by now, in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul has created and laid down all the relational and theological foundation necessary for the church to trust his instruction. Now, remember how I what I just said. What Paul has done since the beginning of Colossians in verse 1 all the way through he has been carefully and strategically laying a foundation, laying a foundation not only theologically, because we're pretty good about giving instruction and correction to one another, aren't we? And, and I'm pretty fast about this. I'm a good gunslinger when it comes to correcting. But Paul is going to do what he's doing through two means. 
he is very careful to lay the correct theological foundation that is, will be necessary for these people to be protected and to be matured in Christ. But he's not only laying a theological, a doctrinal, what the Bible says and what it doesn't say and what's right and what's wrong foundation. But in the context of him laying a theological foundation, he is wrapping it, if you would, wrapping it in love. He is wrapping it in a relational foundation. Remember, he is presenting himself in such a way that when the audience hears him, and they don't know him, but even if they did, they are better able and equipped to receive. And, and I have to be aware of this, and I have to be ever mindful of what the apostle does. I met with a lady the other day who is not a member of this church, whose husband had met with me months ago concerning their marriage. And he's not living in the area, so you don't know who she is, so don't try to figure it out. Looking around the room, is she here? And she was totally distraught and had come to the place, both of them being believers, that she understood in her mind, this is her thoughts, that her marriage is over and she needs to pursue a divorce. Now, if you know anything about what we believe biblically, you know that we don't stand on that ground. I never met her before, so she came in very tentatively, very hesitantly, not really wanting to come in, but only doing so because her husband said, please, please go see Pastor Peter. It's not that Pastor Peter is so wonderful, whatever, but I am the one with whom he met, and so she wanted... He wanted her to go back to make that connection. And so I sat there and listened to her and then began to just ask her questions. And thankfully, the Lord gave me leadership on this and wisdom about herself and her life and who she is and what she's been doing and what's been happening and about their kids and where they're living and how they're whatever. And so for 45 minutes, really, it was a relational bridge building time. You know, and my mind is thinking this way. This is how my natural mind is thinking. <clears throat> yeah, but I had to tell her about divorce. I had to make sure she knows it's God, not God. I, I have, and all the time I'm talking to her and listening to her relationally, it is pressing against my mind the doctrinal truth that she has to know the truth. But what's the real truth? She has to have a relational structure that allows her to not only hear the truth, but a structure on which this truth will be able to stand effectively for her needs. So I spent a little time on that just then because I need to hear that regularly. <clears throat> My wife would tell you, I need to hear that. I need to hear it at home. I need to hear it in conversation with people. I need to hear that. We all need to hear that. So Paul has laid the necessary foundation. So now he's ready to deal with the issue. Verse 4, I say this, I say what? Everything that he has been saying, specifically in the last verses, but in general, everything he's been saying. I say this, why? In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now he's ready to talk about the danger of false teachings that they face. No one may delude you. Let's look at that word delude. They are in danger of being deluded. 
What does delude mean? Well, we would say deceive, perhaps. They are in danger of being misled, in danger of being deceived, in danger of being led astray from the truth into error, from the true light into some darkness. Not from absolute light to absolute darkness, but here's what Satan does. Deception is that activity that occurs as we begin to think, receive, hear, teaching, opinions, thoughts, recommendations that are not clearly and correctly the Word of God. And as we begin to take this in and not discern what it is, there begins to be, as it were, a mist that begins to settle over our lives, just very imperceptible in the beginning, just a little cloudiness, just a little cloudiness. And as this teaching, as these deceptions and delusions continue, if we're not discerning by the Spirit, the cloudiness continues, and ever so slowly, we're not even aware that we're not seeing as well as we should until we stumble on something or hurt ourselves or fall or crash or do whatever, and then we realize, good night, I'm not seeing well. I remember years ago when we owned a printing company. I was doing what we call opaquing negatives. You take, make a negative of something and you put it on a light table and you have to opaque out, put uh, um, blotches of black stuff on the negative through, where these little dots are showing through so they don't appear on the printing. And I remember, you know, slowly, uh, my eyes a little burning a little bit or whatever, and, and finally I came to the conclusion, I'm not seeing as well as I used to. It's a very slow deterioration. That's what deception is. This is what Paul is warning about. You see, they are in danger of hearing something that is not in accordance with, God, with God's Word, and it is intended to remove the person from the path of God. But remember, ever so slightly, if we stood here today and said, Jesus isn't the Lord, He's a ding-a-ling, everybody get up and leave. But that's not what deception is. I mean, that's a, but that's not what the, the, the enemy, that's not his path. It's that ever slight insinuation, suggestion, occasional thought. It's this stuff that Paul is very concerned about. Now, it's a little more obvious in the church, but it begins with an ever slightly something, James, just a little bit of something. And we have to be ready for it. And if not resisted, this will begin to take the place of the Word of God in our lives. Now, what is it that Paul says you're in danger of being deceived by? By what? Plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. Arguments or thoughts or presentations or teachings or suggestions you notice how many words I'm trying to use here because I don't want you to go for something, oh, well, he didn't say that word, so I'm okay in this area. Do you understand that? Because this is part of the delusion. We don't know we're being deceived. It's this stuff that is going on in our minds coming from some source that on the surface, in and of itself, by itself, seems to be okay. It's according with the truth. 
but is really a lie that is intended to replace the Word of God with a contrary word. Starts out so small, Steve, so small. And yet there is a huge malevolent purpose behind all of it. Remember an example of this is in Acts chapter 5. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The church is bringing in money because of the Lord is moving and the Holy Spirit is moving upon believers. And so this husband and wife team go out and sell a piece of land. Let's say they get $100,000 for their piece of land. Now the apostles have not said, hey, when you sell a piece of land or if you're going to give or whatever, you have to give 100% of it, David, to the church. They didn't say anything. They just said, let's give, let's give, let's give. So the Holy Spirit has given them freedom to give as He has instructed each believer in this particular context. This is not a tithe offering necessarily. This is those great gifts that are coming in to, to move the church forward. And so they sell this. You know, they get $100,000 say, man, that's a lot of money. What are we going to do? We're going to keep back $50,000 for ourselves and we're going to give the rest to God. Now, is that in and of itself wrong? No. But, but look at the subtlety here. But Peter said to him, Ananias, because they came up, and Peter says, and they presented it as if this were the whole thing, that they sold it for the 50000 and they were giving the whole thing. You see, there was a thought that came in their minds. Well, maybe we should pretend. Maybe we, there's a little thought, very subtle. They could have said to Peter, look, we got 100000 and we're giving 50000 to the church, and we're going to praise God. And Peter would have said, great, thank you for that, praise God. But a lie has entered their thoughts. A lie, a suggestion. Something plausible. It, it, it seems reasonable to hold back some of it. And it's okay, but the lie was what they're going to say to the Apostle Peter. Maybe because of fear of what they would, he, he would say to them, whatever. But, and so here's what he said. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You see, a plausible thought. You have not lied to man, but to God. Again, these plausible arguments are lies. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, will plausible arguments call, cause us to die? I don't know. But they do begin to work a disaster in our lives if we're not careful. Deception. The de deception delusion is the hook, and the plausible argument is the bait. The deception is the hook, and the plausible argument is that beautiful-looking shrimp on the outside of that hook, that when the fish sees that shrimp, that's a plausible argument. Hey, this looks good. It looks okay. I'm free to eat this shrimp. It's okay. And all of a sudden, they begin to feel the pain of a hook dragging them out of the water into the frying pan. Plausible arguments, deception is the hook, and the argument is the bait. You see, believing such arguments lead 
to our loss of freedom in Christ and back into bondage to sin. Such arguments began where? Where did this all begin? Where did it all begin? How many of you know it began in the Garden of Eden? Remember now, Ken, is it possible for us to teach a class and not talk about Genesis? Well, it is possible, but I don't think it's acceptable. <laughs> so let's go back and remember something about Genesis. Why do I do this? Because I felt the Holy Spirit, first of all, say to do this. And secondly, I think it's very important for us to see some of these dynamics occurring. And the best place to see it is in the original plausible argument. The original plausible argument. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. You may want to be turning in your Bible there or make notes as we go along. These plausible arguments began in the Garden of Eden. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now that sounds all right. But look at what is said in this verse. Look at what God is telling us, the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom that he's giving us in this one verse. We read these verses too often quickly and we're not seeing the huge minefield of revelation here. This is an enormous verse. Now, who would ever have thought it was enormous? Let's look at it. It's enormous in relation to this whole issue of being captured by plausible suggestions. First of all, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Crafty. Crafty describes the intent of Satan's heart to continually undermine the purposes of God with his lies of suggestions or statements or thoughts. That's the purpose of Satan, to undermine the truth of the gospel in the people of God in order to rob God of his work of displaying his glory of us being his image bearers to the place that Satan through deception can get us from a walking in truth is a place that we are not imaging God in those areas. Crafty describes the intent. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 44. He's talking to the Pharisees, and they're talking about, you know, the truth and the lie. We're not under bondage. We've never been enslaved to anyone or whatever. And Jesus says this, and, and here, is, here is the man of grace himself. Because sometimes we think grace always and only should say sweet and loving and kind, whatever things. Here is the Son of God, the living love of God in a man for man. Here's what he says to these who are perpetrating lies. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And he says, whoo, you calling us children of the devil? We're children of Abraham. He goes on to say, if I find my place. There is, there is no truth in the devil. Well, we can go with that. We understand that. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. So first of all, the serpent 
is more crafty than any beast. Who is he? He is a liar, the father of lies. And everything out of Satan's mouth is a lie. Do you remember, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4? Remember the temptation in the wilderness. And here we have, at least on one occasion, the devil is quoting the word of God to the Son of God as a temptation. He said, doesn't the word say that if you cast yourself off, you know, he won't even let you hurt your toe, but he'll gather you up. He will send his angels. Remember that? Now, here Satan has just quoted the word of God. But what is his intent in quoting the word of God? It's to ensnare. It's to present in this word something contrary to the will of God for Jesus. And what does that say? We have to not only know the word, but to how to properly wisely, judiciously, and in right timing and in a right way, apply that Word of God. Because everything in the Word of God does not always apply to me all the time at once. And so even in quoting the Word of God, the Word of truth, Satan turns the Word of truth into a lie. Do you remember that? So we have to be careful not only knowing the Word, but how that word is to be used and when it is to be used and with whom it is to be used against what is it being used and all of those issues of using the word of God because Satan is a crafty enemy. Secondly, of the field. Remember, the serpent is more crafty than any beast, what? Of the field. Look at that word. This phrase describes that which is outside the garden of the field. Now, I didn't list the verses, but I gave you, I think, the references from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5, 19, and 20. Of the field, of the field, of the field. Well, look. Then look at verse 7 of chapter 2. The Lord God, remember, creates man. And what does he do in verse 8? The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So we have the creation of the field. That's what is the, this earth is called at, up to that time. And then once God has created the earth, then he creates a garden and puts it somewhere over there in that Middle East over there, which we understand the Euphrates and the Tigris, remember. And he plants a garden there. And in that garden, he places the man whom he has just created. That's what the word says. He has planted the garden, and he's placed the man in that garden. That garden now sits in the midst of, of the field. Now, if we're not careful as believers, we would think that in creating the earth, the Garden of Eden is the entire earth. Everything about the world is the entire earth. Well, no, that's not what we have here. We have the earth of the field, and we have the description, the garden, which is a place. There's a distinction between of the field and in the garden. In the midst of the field, God has created the garden in which he places man to be his image bearer. Where is Adam able to be his image bearer? Where is he called to do this? In the garden. 
He is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. Remember in Genesis 1.28. That's the mandate that God has given his image bearers. Now, what is the purpose of that? So as Adam fulfills this mandate in obedience to the will of God, some way, and I don't know how this works, this issue of God's presence and of His image in Adam and Eve and in their obedient progeny, their children, causes the revelation of God to expand and the Garden of Eden slowly begins to be taking over the issues that are out in the field, the disorder, the whatever is out in the field, so that one day the entire earth becomes God's garden. That's the purpose of God here. That's what God is after. In order to accomplish this, Adam was given authority, the authority of the Word of God. Remember in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, Adam is given authority to protect the garden and his wife from any encroachment of the field. Remember Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Why? To work it and to keep it. Well, what does that mean, to work and keep the garden? We've talked about this. It doesn't mean just to take a shovel and be moving the dirt around and pulling up weeds and trimming bushes and then watering it, although maybe there was some of that activity. I don't know. But the, to work it and keep it are the same Hebrew words that we find in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 when the Lord tells the Levites in relation to how they are to deal with the tabernacle, he says, here's the tabernacle, and the priests, the Levites, are to work to minister in the tabernacle and to guard the tabernacle, to keep it, to guard it. To guard it against what? To guard the tabernacle from the incursion of anything impure coming into God's tabernacle. Remember, you just didn't walk into the tabernacle of God through the curtain and say, Hey, God, here I am. Oh, praise You had to go through the, in fact, you couldn't even go into the tabernacle. And, you know, then we get the temple. You had to go through the sacrificial system. And in order for the people of God to enter into the presence of God, they never personally could enter the tabernacle themselves. They had to enter through the priest. The priest. Symbolizing the priesthood of Jesus when he himself gave himself as the blood offering as the priests were sacrificing the animals and took the blood into the most holy place or the center place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and the visible presence of God was. Remember the mercy seat and the blood was poured out, sprinkled out seven times with the finger upon the lid, the kaporth on top of the seat so that that judgment seat became the mercy seat. And for another year, the priest would come out, and one more year, the people would have the presence of God among them because their sins have been put away for another year. That's a picture of what Jesus does at the cross. And now we are called a nation of priests. And we are the ones who come into the very presence of God through the blood that Jesus has spilled and has been applied to us in our redemption. Amen? Adam is given to minister the Word of God, to minister the things of God, and to guard the place and the things of God. He was to be a guardian minister, if you would, 
a man who ministered the things of God by the word of God. That's the only instruction that he had, and it's the only way he knew what to minister and how to minister, when to minister, and all of that. And then his ministry, part of it was not only to deal with the issues and, and, and build the kingdom and live, but it was to make a guard against the incursion of anything out in the field. That which was in the field was not supposed to be intruding into the garden. But Adam failed, you remember, to keep the serpent out of the field. I'm sorry, of the field, out of the garden. The serpent of the field. He didn't keep the serpent out. People said, where did the serpent come from? How did he, what did, what did he get in there? You know, AJ, what? Well, what was simply put, the serpent was not supposed to come into the garden. He was supposed to have been kept out of the garden by Adam's authority of the Word of God, Adam had been given the power and authority to keep this thing out of the garden. As believers, we have the authority and the ability to keep Satan out of our thoughts. Can you say amen? We have the authority of God by the Word of God to throw Satan out away when we hear him speaking what does James 4 7 say what does it say someone told me not too long ago it says resist the enemy and he will flee from you I said that is not what say, uh, it, the 4 7 says of James and man that man's fingers were flying so fast through that word he was going to show me James how wrong we were and I said read it to me he said therefore submit it first says submit to God, be obedient, minister, obey, walk, care, love, be adjusted, whatever God is doing. Recognize God's sovereignty and His right and His power. Be thankful in your hearts for what He's done, etc., etc. Therefore, submit yourself to God, then what? then you are able to guard your hearts and minds. You see the word guard there, protect. And so when the enemy comes in and begins to intrude in the garden of our minds, we are supposed to eject him, resist the devil. And then the third statement in James 4, 7 is what? And he will what? Flee from you. You see? When we get under attack by the enemy's thoughts and suggestions, we don't have to, oh God, help me, God, help me, protect me. Don't pray like that. He's already done everything he needs to do. Now you take up the sword of the word. You take up the shield of faith. You have everything that you need. I have everything that I need in Christ to do battle against this enemy and to keep him not from intruding, there's nothing I can do to keep him from intruding. So when the flaming arrows of these arguments and thoughts begin to be fired against my mind, I can take up the shield of faith, remember, in Ephesians 6, um, 16, and I can quench them. And he has to leave. Adam was to keep Satan out. Satan came in because Adam did not guard the garden nor did he guard his wife 
Now, there's so much to say here. Oh, my word, just don't have time. But there's so much to say here about how we relate to one another and how we walk with one another and how husbands are to be guarding their wives and how the men of God in the church are to be guarding and ministering and how the women of the, uh, of the church are to be ministering and working with and cooperating with this whole issue that God is doing in the church. Because we, you see, are the garden of God today. But Adam failed. So in Genesis 3, 1 to 5, we see that the serpent is seeking to deceive Adam's wife with persuasive arguments. What does he say in verse 1? Uh, you know, I know God talked to you. I know you know the word. But, but did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, when she began to hear a contrary thought, now, I'm not sure if she knows it's contrary or not. I don't know whether she understands that this is a deception or not. I, I'm not quite clear in what Satan says is she's ignorant or whatever. But the point is this. What had God actually said? Remember, we go to verse 16 in chapter 2. You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall what? Surely die. Now, that's what God said. And so what does Satan do? All he's doing is putting in one little word, just a little alteration, a minor suggestion, seemingly so, seemingly so. A minor suggestion. Satan made what seemed to be a minor change to God's word, intending to produce a major disaster. A minor deception resulting in a major disaster. A false testimony about God. That's what a deception is. Look at verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, Now, what's wrong with this? She should not be talking to this beast of the field. And Adam, who was right next to her, which we'll see in verse 6, should have said, hey, you out of here. He should have said to his wife, sweetheart, I'll handle this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I'll handle this. Not shut up, woman, let me talk. <laughs> no. No, I'll handle this. I'll handle this. You see, I'll handle it. It's not that the woman didn't have any ability, whatever, but this is an issue that Adam and his authority must take up as a head of the family. So she's conversing. What does that say to us? When I begin to have thoughts and attitudes and feelings that at least I know that are wrong, should I entertain them for one moment? How many of us say, I wonder if, I wonder, you know, we think about these things, we ponder them. That is a ploy of the enemy. The Holy Spirit never speaks to us, causes us to say, hmm, I wonder if this and that, you, know, you understand what I mean, not what should I minister here or here, but there, there are issues in us that I think we understand that I wonder if I should say this or go there or look at that or think that or whatever. Holy Spirit doesn't deal like that. And the woman said, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said, now here it is, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, that's pretty close. How many of you, really, that's, seriously, that's pretty close, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty close, isn't it? 
But you know what? It's not close enough. It's not close enough. It's pretty close. Some of us know the word okay pretty well, but it's not close enough to guard. It's not close enough to protect. It's not close enough to discern, to resist Satan so he'll flee. It's not close enough. It's close, but not close enough. So seeing her confusion, and, and I'm sure, I don't know if this thing could smile, but I'm sure he's grinning from face side to side because she's chatting with him and he has just gotten what he needs. Some confusion about God's command. The enemy struck with the bait, the plausible argument. Hmm, okay, I understand what God said. Hmm. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You'll be knowing good and evil. I mean, look at all the good stuff God's trying to keep from you. These are the things God's trying to keep from you, the good things. See, Eve took the bait. Eve took the bait. Now, we're not going to talk about surely die or just die or whatever. There's a whole lot we can talk about, but let's just move along. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, all of a sudden a thought came into her mind, a suggestion, and what did she do? She looked at the thought, began to, what, ponder it, consider it, evaluate it. And when that happened, her mind began to see it as something desirable, something good. So she saw that the tree was good for food. Hey, that was a light to the eyes. Hey, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Hmm. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We're not going to do this today, but if you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, the apostle will delineate the three issues that are involved with loving the world. Okay? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, I think it's through 17. I could have missed it by a verse, but I think it's 17. And, and when you read those verses, read those verses in relation to Eve's answer in 3.6 of Genesis. Read it in relation to that, and you'll see what the enemy is doing. Adam failed to protect his wife in the garden. The argument promised life but produced death. The argument that promised delight and life and good things resulted in death. You see, Paul's intention in this letter is to protect the church from such a calamity. From such a calamity. This is He was warning them against believing any plausible argument, no matter how obvious or unobvious or how small or how large, no matter what it is, don't believe them. That would anything adjust God's words in another way. See, this is why the Apostle John says in 1 John, test the spirits to see whether they are in what? of whether they are of God. Test them. Test them. See where they come from. And what is the test? 
friends, what is the test? Go to one of the elders and ask them. Well, that's not a bad issue, but there's something better than that. What is the test? Come to Sunday school. That's a great, but there's something more basic than that. Listen to good sermons. That's okay, but there's something more basic than that. Something has to happen before that. We have to be rooted and grounded where? In the Word of God. Do you see how regularly the issue of knowing the Word of God and understanding the Word of God and being wise in the Word of God by the Spirit continually comes up in this letter? This is a letter about and for the Word of God, the supremacy and preeminence of Christ, the living Word of God in us by the Spirit. This is what this letter, and actually all of them are, but very specifically, this letter is all about. That's why I say to you and I plead with you and I cajole you regularly, read the Word of God. Don't fall for any plausible argument that says, I don't have time. Something is more important. I don't have to do this as regularly because I know a few things. Don't fall for the argument. I can't go to class on Sunday morning. It's so early. There's so many other things to do. Plausible arguments. You know, there's a, an example of this in Ai in Joshua. In chapter 7. Remember what happened? Chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, Joshua is ready to take the nation against the enemy into the promised land. They're in the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan. They've been to Gilgal and all the men have been circumcised, now they are ready. That is a picture of the devotion of the heart to God. We are ready to fight this thing and conquer this land. And at the end of chapter 5, Joshua's out there, and he sees this man, this man standing with a sword in his hand. And Joshua very wisely says, are you for or against us? Very smart man. And he says, neither. You see, he doesn't commit himself to man Man has to be committed to God first. And then this man says, I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Remember the captain of our salvation in Hebrews. This is Jesus Christ himself, a theophany or Christophany, you know, a reappearing of Jesus in a physical form before he was born into the world. How do we know it's the Lord himself? Because he uses the same terminology to Joshua as he did to uh, Moses in Exodus 3. Take off your shoes from off your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. And no angel would say that. Only the God of glory can say that. So they are ready. They have the presence and the power of God before them. And they march over there and they obey God in what? Jericho and the walls come collapsing down in chapter 6. And the Lord said, don't touch any of the stuff. It's all mine. And you remember Achan takes some of it. And in chapter 7 we have the issue of Achan. I'm sorry, is it chapter 7? Yeah, yeah. Achan, you know, being punished for that, remember, and so on. Now, look at it. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people. Just a few trinkets, come on. Why is God so uptight? It's just a plausible argument, a few little things. And then here's what we have in verse 3. And they returned to Joshua. Remember, they went out to spy the land. 
Achan is dealt with. They spy the land in verse 2 to see what's beyond Jericho. They come back, and he says, look, look, look. We conquered this huge fortress. AI is kind of small. It's like a, it's like a West Wego. We just conquered the city of you know, New Orleans, West Wego. We don't really need to take everybody with us. Why don't we just uh, let two or 3,000 men go up and attack AI and don't make the whole people toil up there for their few. So about 3,000 men went up from there and they fled before the men of AI. It was a plausible argument. Why? Let, let's just be a little reasonable about this. Let's just be culturally sensitive. Let's just do it a different way. The Lord was telling them, what was the matter here? Does it mean that 3,000 people couldn't have destroyed AI? No, one man could have destroyed AI under the power of the Holy Spirit. What was the problem? Joshua hadn't prayed. He hadn't asked God. He listened to a plausible argument. And so they were defeated at AI and had to go back and, remember, redo it. This is Paul's burden to keep them from such. How will they be protected? They needed to be what? Remember verse 9 of chapter 1? How can we be protected? Paul says this, I pray. Remember verse 9 of chapter 1? That you be what? What word? Filled. What does filling mean? Overflowing, overflowing. I pray that you be filled with what? The knowledge of God's word. In all spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Then he starts talking about what that means. Church, and we'll continue next week, we'll see. We are continually, day by day, hour by hour, being bombarded by plausible arguments that are intended to damage the testimony of Christ in our lives. We have one protection only. The Word of God as ministered in revelation and application by His Spirit. We have one method of protection only. The Word of God as administered, as revealed, and administered by the power of His Spirit. That's all we have, and brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't need no more. See you next week.